0: Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Welcome back to the Shelter and Warning podcast, and thank you so much for joining us today. We are a Monster of the Week podcast, literally, so every episode we cover a new monster. Monsters can be both fact and fiction, and they're usually hiding in plain sight. The more you know about monsters, the better equipped you are to protect yourself if you ever have to face one. A quick note before we start. If anything I say is inaccurate, insensitive, offensive, or should be added to, contact me. I'm trying my best to find accurate information on my topics but I welcome all corrections and would love to have an open dialogue on any larger issues. All social media handles and my email will be in the description and I'll save them at the end of the episode, so stay tuned for that. Our topic today, the Glamour Girl Slayer. Who was this killer? Who were his victims? And why has he been largely forgotten about in the true crime sphere of today? Known in the media as the Glamour Girl Slayer and the Lonely Hearts Killer, Harvey Glattman was a serial killer from 1957 to 1958 who lured his victims in by posing as a photographer and promising them a modeling career. He was born on December 10, 1927 in the Bronx and was raised in Denver, Colorado in the early 1930s and 40s. He exhibited sadistic and violent tendencies from an alarmingly young age. At the age of 12, his mother found him choking himself with a noose. She took Glattman to the family psychiatrist who attested that he would simply grow out of it. Around this time, Glattman also began breaking and entering into private residences, taking something of value from each home. From one home, he managed to lift a twenty-six caliber handgun. It, and anything else he took, acted like trophies for his crimes. Glattman threatened, tied up, broke into the houses, and assaulted several women in his teenage years, leading to his first run run-in with the police, where he threatened a woman with a toy gun and she managed to turn him in. Glattman's prints and mugshot were taken, but he was released on bail. As he got older, Glattman continued his pattern of crime, including breaking into several more houses and taking trophies, snatching purses, and assaulting women. He did an eight-month stint in prison when he was 17, and when he was released, his mother took him back to New York, where he did two years and eight months in Sing Sing for robbery and mugging charges. After his release from prison, Glattman moved from New York to Los Angeles and supported himself by doing television repairs. He also had several hobbies that were fueled by, and later led into, his desire to murder, including ropes and photography, both of which he'd been interested in since he was a child. Glatton started placing ads in various newspapers and magazines, billing himself as a licensed photographer. He knew that the demographic most likely to respond to these ads were pretty young, independent women, especially because he lived in Los Angeles and the city was full of young women looking for their big break. Glattman's first victim was a 19-year-old woman named Judy Ann Dull. Judy lived in West Hollywood with her young daughter and her soon-to-be ex-husband, who she was fighting in court. Her two roommates would look out for and trade modeling gigs between each other. While acting needed an expensive agent and headshots that Judy couldn't afford, all modeling required was a pretty face. On August 1, 1957, Judy took up a modeling job that one of her roommates had passed over or needed to drop out of at the last minute. It's not entirely clear. At 2 p.m., a man who called himself Johnny Glenn showed up at her apartment to collect Judy for the job. Despite the fact that she originally didn't want to go with him and was uneasy about the whole situation, he won her over by promising $20 an hour, about $185 an hour in today's money. So you can see why she would take the job. However, Judy did convince Johnny to leave his phone number with one of her roommates in case anything went horribly wrong. They then left Judy's apartment, which was the last time anyone saw her alive. As you might have guessed by now, Johnny Glenn was the alias used by Harvey Gladman in order to distance himself from his crimes and hide his identity. He also had absolutely no intention of ever paying Judy. Telling her the photo sheet was for a detective magazine, Glattman was able to, t- was able to easily tie up Judy and gag her, effectively leaving her unable to resist the murder. Judy was reported missing once her roommates called the phone number that she left with them and realized it was a machine shop that had never heard of a Johnny Glenn. An APB was issued for Glenn, although he wasn't identified based on the description given, and Glattman continued to evade detection. Days after she had disappeared, Judy's husband gained full custody of her daughter, testifying that Judy had kept her in poor conditions. The results of the hearing and his testimony, however, didn't really matter. She'd never be able to see her daughter again. Unlike the rest of his crimes, there is no concrete evidence that leads from Glattman to Judy. While there are witness statements and the method of murder along while the witness statements and the method of murder, along with the time frame, fit his profile as a serial killer, the case of Harvey Lapman killing Judy Dole will likely never be proven definitively. However, it's certain he killed her, to the point of several reputable news sources and the police blaming him for the case, along with him confessing to it. In March of the next year, 24-year-old Shirley Bridgeford went missing. A divorced mother of two, Shirley had started to venture back into the dating world and signed up for a local Lonely Hearts Club, where people would go to try and find a lover or a friend. A man reportedly named George Williams picked up Shirley and went to the dance with her, after which she disappeared. When police looked into the case, they found that the George Williams registered to the club had a non-existent address and the description of Williams on record with the club did not match the description of the man who had picked up Shirley for her date at all. Shirley's friends and family combed through stacks of photos of potential subjects from the LAPD archive, but they were unable to find a match. Meanwhile, detectives were unable to find out much else about George Williams and couldn't even verify his existence. Like Judy, Shirley was also taken into the desert surrounding Los Angeles and murdered, also tied up and gagged. Glattman took photographs of her in this way that were later used in order to convict him of the crime. Glattman's last victim was a woman named Ruth Rita Mercado. Ruth was a pinup model who had recently moved to LA from New York. In July of 1958, she left for a photo shoot with an unknown man. Four days after she left, her landlord reported her missing, as he'd gone up to her apartment to check on her, And he found a small dog and two parakeets, nearly dead from starvation, a lack of water, and general neglect. Like the other two women, Ruth had been taken out into the desert, tied up, gagged, and then strangled, with her body left out there to decompose and stay far away from where Glattman could be tied to the murder. Up until this point, Glattman had killed three so-called glamour girls from the Los Angeles area. His next victim, however, was going to be his last. 28-year-old, 28-year-old Lorraine Vigil got a call from her modeling agency that she'd booked a job and the client was coming to pick her. Wow. <clears> Twenty-eight <throat> year old Lorraine Vigil got a call from her modeling agency that she'd booked a job, and that the client was coming to take her to a studio on October 27, 1958. The man who picked her up introduced himself as Frank Johnson. One of Glattman's several aliases. However, Lorraine was suspicious of him from the very start when he refused to step inside her home. Her suspicions only grew when Johnson did not drive towards Hollywood, but he assured her his studio was simply in a different direction. Lorraine only became alarmed once he got on the Santa Ana freeway and started driving at ridiculous speeds, refusing to speak to, look at, or acknowledge her in any way. Once they reached a deserted section of highway, Glatman pulled over, stating that he thought he had a flat. Suddenly, he pulled out a gun and pointed it directly at Lorraine. Lorraine managed to grab the muzzle of the gun, causing Glatman to scream, I'm an ex-con and I'll kill you. I don't give a darn if I go to the gas chamber. Lorraine continued to hold on to the muzzle of the gun and scream as Glatman picked up a piece of rope from the back seat and attempted to force one of her hands behind her back. He told her that if she just listened to what he said she wouldn't get hurt luckily lorraine was able to clock this for the absolute lie it was she says i knew however that he would kill me and i wouldn't let go of the gun somehow with the other hand i opened the door on my side and we both fell out onto the street we rolled over and over on the shoulder of the road cars millions of cars passed but none would stop once the gun went off the bullet went through my skirt and burned terribly on my thigh I will never forget the hideous sound of the bullet as it whined off into the night. Glatman had underestimated Lorraine. As they fell out of the car and onto the street, Lorraine bit Glattman as hard as she could on the wrist, allowing her to grab his gun. She turned the gun towards him, and Lorraine said, quote, if I would known how to fire it, I believe I could have killed him. But he just stood there and watched me, and after a while the police came. Police had been in the area and quickly came to the scene arresting Glattman and taking Lorraine in as a witness. She was heralded with stopping the attacks, but Lorraine was also dismissed from her job because of her newfound notoriety. Meanwhile, Glatman was taken in for questioning as his home and car were searched. He easily confessed to the crimes, seeming happy and proud as he sadistically recounted details of all three murders that only the killer himself would have known. Glatman appeared before the court in December of 1958, pleading guilty and asking for the death sentence much to the surprise of the judge and the prosecuting lawyer. He was charged for the murders of Shirley Bridgeford and Ruth Mercado, and given the death sentence. From December 1958 to September 1959, Harvey Glatman was confined on death row at San Quentin State Prison in Marlin, California. At the age of 31, he was killed by gas chamber, and his remains were cremated and then buried in the San Quentin Cemetery. While the media had a frenzy with harvey Glatman and his crimes dubbing him the lonely hearts killer and the glamour girl slayer he's a somewhat overlooked part of true crime and i've rarely seen a podcast youtube channel or even just true crime buff talk about him that may be partially due to several factors unlike ted bundy or john wayne gacy glattman's murders never even reached double digits unlike the zodiac killer Glatman was caught charged sentenced and given the death penalty And unlike The Son of Sam, media outlets really only latched on to the case after Glattman was already in custody, as there wasn't enough of a pattern to see to his crimes before he was arrested. However, I'd also like to talk about the influence the victims a serial killer chooses have on how they are spoken about and how their crimes are perceived. Two out of Glattman's four victims were women of color, specifically Latina. One of them, Lorraine Vigil, was a singular reason he was brought to justice. When only white people are consulted and present their opinions in a space as fraught as true crime, the definition of a crime and what stories get told are often whitewashed as well. While it's very much obvious to anyone who follows the news or who knows about American law enforcement practices that crimes committed against people of color, specifically Black and Indigenous people of color, are ignored, the true crime genre takes us to another realm. True crime creators are not detectives. Their job is not to investigate cases. They're also not reporters. Their job isn't to report cases factually and honestly. It's all about the story. What will keep your audience hooked and get them to click on your next episode? The true crime community knows what works. Most stories feature young, conventionally attractive white women who was killed by an older man, and the case is usually brought to justice through some sort of stellar police work. All of this is perfectly calculated to keep a majority white audience interested. The young, pretty woman as a lead is a perfect character to sympathize with. The creepy older man who kills her is very easily hated and derided. And the police, who usually come in at the last second to solve the crimes, are almost always celebrated for their work. Even in cases like the Zodiac Killers, where the police still haven't caught the actual suspect, still paint the police as trying their hardest. However, crime in reality rarely happens to young, pretty white women, most men kill other men, not young women, and the police rarely solve crimes that don't garner massive media attention. The whiteness of the true crime genre treats the police as a just and perfect system, where punishments always match the crime. But millions of people of color specifically have firsthand experiences with the justice system that prove anything but. Take, for example, Samuel Little, one of the most prolific serial killers in all of American history he confessed to 93 victims, disproportionately black women. He'd been an active murderer since the 1980s, but he wasn't tried for anything until 2014. Essentially, this man managed to murder at least 60 confirmed people over a span of 40 years. Yet, he goes almost completely unnoticed in the justice system and in true crime spheres that continue to tell the stories of Dahmer and JonBenet Ramsey. Overall, as author of The Rise of True Crime, Jean Murley puts it, modern true crime is almost a fantasy genre. It's particularly disingenuous right now, as last summer's Black Lives Matter protests alerted people across the world to the predatory and violent nature of the police to communities of color. While many creators in the genre use their platforms to spread BLM info and that of other progressive movements, their stories and contents don't seem to reflect those promises. Good true crime recognizes the limitations of the genre it's in, telling the story of someone else's death for a profit is inherently exploitative. It also chooses stories and victims that break the mold of a young, attractive white woman and an older white man, acknowledging that not only does crime involve other demographics, but that marginalized people face the highest rates of violence and assault in the country, take the hundreds of missing indigenous and black women across the United States. It doesn't glorify or glamorize the inherently violent institution of the police. And finally, it recognizes the privilege of which stories are able to be told. I hope this episode of the Shelter and Warning podcast entertained and educated you. If it did, please consider leaving us a rating or review on iTunes. You can find the Shelter and Warning podcast at Shelter and Warn on Twitter, at TikTok, Instagram, and Tumblr at Shelter and Warning Podcast, or contact us through email at shelterandwarningpodcast at gmail.com. Full transcripts of our show, along with a list of all of our sources, are available in our Google Drive. Once again, if there are any corrections or additions that you would like to make, contact me and I will do my best to address them. Thank you so much for listening, and good luck. You'll need it.